to maximize your influence. Your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to another episode of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson here with Kurt Mortensen. We are happy to be doing the podcast for you here today. We would love to hear your comments at MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. Tell us how right we are, how wrong we are, uh, how awesome we are. That would apply to Kurt, not me. I'll let you use your judgment on what applies to me. (laughs) Kurt, I am sitting out here in Fremont, California, working on some real estate. Where are you at today? Oh, I'm on the home front, although this week I was in, uh, I guess that was, was it this week? It was this week. I was in scenic San Francisco, and I'll tell you, that is one interesting city. You see things that you don't want to see. You see things you've never seen before, and you see things that I guess that you just want to see sometimes. (laughs) It's a very interesting city, but I'll tell you what, you want any type of Asian food from Thai to Vietnamese to Chinese, there are some incredible restaurants downtown San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, my clients that I'm with are talking about taking me out for some Thai tomorrow. I love Thai food. Oh, that's one of my favorites, except when you actually go to Thailand, they serve a lot of those crispy bugs on the corner that don't look too appetizing. I used to say I'll try anything once, but once you have a few trips to China or Thailand, you're like, maybe not, after pig blood pudding on a stick and intestines and rat babies. It's not the the best thing for you, I don't think. Fantastic. So (laughs) So I hope everybody's hungry now. They're craving some good food after we talked about some of the things people eat. Yeah, that's pretty gross. Pretty (laughs) gross. But I guess I'll try anything once people have never been to Singapore. Yeah, there's some countries where you got to be careful when you say that. And of course, when you hear you say that, they're like, okay, Come on. And they find the worst food possible to see if you'll eat it. <laughs> of course. And we have listeners in Singapore, and we really appreciate you listening. Hey, I love Singapore. That's a place where you get chili crab, and that is incredible. I'm sure that they think some of our food is extremely strange. That's true. That's true. I just I, I had uh, L&L Hawaiian barbecue for dinner tonight, put on about 10 pounds, and a lot of greasy but fantastic food. But I just haven't ever been able to figure out how macaroni salad goes with uh, Kahlua pork. I don't know if it's macaroni salad. It's mayonnaise with a little macaroni salad in it. Yeah, mayonnaise pasta. <laughs> and it's like every time you eat there, and it's good food, and I'll give a thumbs up for it, but you can just feel your butt getting a little bigger every time you take a bite of their food. <laughs> it's like, whoop, like ooh, where'd that come from? But it is tasty, I'll give you that. Yeah, well, I think you're the one famous for saying that, that if every time you had a french fry, you got a new roll of fat, then you start to think about consequences a little bit differently when they're so short-term. Yeah, it takes a while for habits to show up, and if that were instant, weight gain was instant from the food we ate, we would be very skinny people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) going off of what I ate tonight, that's for sure. Definitely for sure. Well, good, good. Glad to be back with you. I, we we did a couple of interviews with Jerry on personality types. Got some great feedback on that. You can send us questions in to maximize your influence at Gmail. And I, I hope a lot of people took advantage of Jerry's offer to get those personality cards that he was talking about. A good way to have quick reference on different personality types. So today we have some more great information for you. And Kurt, you have an article that uh, came out of Harvard Business Review about influence. And I seem to remember you wrote a book, and we have a podcast with that <laughs> word in it. 
So we might as well talk about something like that when it comes out. Yeah, we love influence. We'll talk about it all day long. And then the Harvard Business Review came out with a whole issue about influence. And they do this almost once a year. They finally added to their MBA programs courses on sales and influence and leadership because so many people graduate from most universities are just not ready to influence to sell because everybody sells for a living. It doesn't matter who you are. We all influence for a living. And the people getting out of these programs, they could do the accounting, they could do the statistics, they could understand HR, but they really couldn't influence people and they didn't understand human nature. And as I got into it, I was reading about motivation, which is part of influence, and they were looking at football coaches to see who was more motivating. The football coach that was in your face, just yelling at you, just driving at you, or the one that was kind of quiet, a little more reserved, kind of the silent type, expected a lot out of you, would be disappointed but wouldn't yell at you. And it's interesting because most people want to do the military management in your face, do it to your fire, do it or else, do whatever kick you out. But they found that when there was no coach at all, versus a yelling coach versus a silent coach, it's pretty interesting. So the norm was no coach at all. So when they got a coach that would yell, it actually improved the players by 22%. Now that quiet, silent type actually improved by 33%. So it does improve to yell and scream at people if you need to. It has a short-term effect. But if you want the long-term effect, there was 11% difference between the quiet type and the type that yelled at you and that was in your face. Now, that's pretty interesting. So you said the yelling was more short-term. They noticed the, the influence going down over time then? Yeah, it did go over time. But for this study, it was pretty instant as far as it worked. There's no doubt about it that it worked just like in the workplace. I can tell you to do it or you're fired. Do it because I'm the boss, and I will have that short-term compliance. But then I get the long-term resentment that rebellion, and you get employees doing funny things to your coffee. Funny things, yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting. I had a boss that he was that uh, quiet type that was very reserved and such. And sometimes instead of him just giving me that, that silent treatment or, or acting all I just wanted him to start cussing at me or something, right? <laughs> Let me know you're there. <laughs> And sometimes we're used to that. We want that, especially those that have been through sports. We're used to that type of thing. Okay, yell at me already. I blew it. Take my head out. Throw some profanity at me. But for the long term, for the most part, it's the strong, silent type. But I think it's okay every once in a while if you needed to yell or get upset or show a little emotion. I think that's part of the persuasion influence makes, and it really can get your message across. But if you're using that tool over and over and over again, of course, it's going to lose its value. Like when you were a kid and uh, your mom yelled at you, you'd kind of, oh, geez. But when she gave you the look that all moms have, that look that can melt concrete, <laughs> but and she's not saying anything, that's when you really put your tail between your legs and did whatever you were supposed to do. Yeah, that had a lot more effect. When they say your full name and you, oh, yeah, I know, I heard it before. But <laughs> you get that look, you're like, uh-oh, I disappointed mom. Mom's going to cry. Oh, no. Yeah, they've got, they've got that stare that they can give you. and. Yeah, I think that's true because it, it goes back to the fact that people who talk less are, I think, many times perceived to be more pensive, more analytical, maybe a little bit more wise. And yelling and screaming all the time is just the opposite of that. And especially, you're right on, more wise. They come across with more expertise because the more you reveal yourself and you talk a lot, you reveal that you really don't know that much and you're not all that. And it actually decreases your credibility and expertise. 
<laughs> it's so true. Sometimes people that you admire, the more that they talk and the more that you hear them, I guess the more you realize, ah, this person's only human. Yeah, so many times I've been so excited to meet somebody, and then after all, I'm like, really? Okay, whatever. <laughs> we won't <laughs> we won't name names, but I could have I have a list of people that whatever versus people that I'm like, wow, that I'm impressed by that person. I want to be around them. I want to learn from them. But it's interesting our initial expectations versus what actually happens. Yeah. Well, I talked on the show a couple of weeks back how I went and saw Jerry Seinfeld in Las Vegas. And that's something I always always admired about him is that he went out on top. When he stopped doing his show, people were begging for more. And he's almost universally well thought of to this day, as opposed to some sitcoms or TV series or, or whatever else that's out there that just goes until it has one last dying breath and people say, all right, enough already. We've had enough of you. Stop it. He did. A lot of those TV shows just milk it and milk it to where you're so sick of it versus he went out on top. He's still doing a lot of different things. And I bet you, and I know his syndication with the shows is doing very well. I bet you it is. Now, how does that apply on a persuasion side of things if you're if you're a football coach you've got to have that strong silent motivation where does this apply on the persuasion front what can you tell us first of all we adapt our motivation to everybody that we talk to i mean in a team situation there's those motivated by as we always talk about there's two motivators in life there's inspiration and desperation to be able to adapt our ability to persuade to where they are at that present moment to adapt our style whether you're yelling or you are doing the strong, silent type, you have to know, is your audience motivated by inspiration? Are they motivated by desperation? And how to adapt it? Should you use a combination of both? Or the big mistake people tend to make is when people are in desperation or they're moving away from something, they're full of fear, that's something that you could crank up the fear and use a little inspiration to buffer that. But when people are in inspiration, they're excited, they're passionate, they're moving towards something, Never go into desperation, never go into fear, because that motivation will backfire on you every time. Good points, good stuff. Don't, don't, don't! Well, I hear Homer Simpson. Oh, our favorite sound, there's the blunder. Yeah, and we are going to pick a very easy target. Well, it's not like we've never not picked an easy target for the blunder, right? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That's why you're the blunder, easy target. Stop being such an easy target. And nobody... Nobody is easier than the United States Congress, Senate, and the presidency right now (laughs) with the government shutdown. It is just so easy to not like any of these guys. It is. They're so one-sided. They're blaming each other. They're pointing fingers. It's like they're all back in third grade. Both sides think they're right. Both sides are name-calling. We're like, really? These are adults? These are people in Washington? If you could really step back and look at this independently, you would get nauseous. I've consulted for both sides. I know both sides. I get to rip on both sides because... They're just at this standstill holding ground, and the harder they hold on, the harder the other side will hold on. They don't understand the basic principles of influence and negotiation. It is it is pretty sad. It really is, because if you were to look into the, and forgive me, international listeners, I know this is doesn't apply to you as much, but hey, it does apply to the whole world in the fact that the, the United States could potentially default on its debt payments, which could put the world financial markets in it in a complete tailspin. So this is a world-relevant issue here. 
And what makes it completely ridiculous is that the Congress or the Constitution of the United States specifies how budgeting and these kinds of things are to be handled. Yet everybody is not responsible. (laughs) (laughs) The Republican-controlled House, we're just trying to put some bills forward and nobody will vote on it. And the Senate is saying, well, we just need a bill that, that we can pass, never mind the fact that they haven't passed one in who knows how long. And the presidency doesn't seem to be willing to bring any kind of resolution to this thing. Nobody is stepping up. Nobody is leading in this instance. There are no leaders to step up and realize, okay, let's let's take a look at this. Because both sides are right, and both sides think the other side's wrong. Because we're all this together, for the most part, Everybody wants pretty much the same thing with their life and their income and their safety and their children. 90% of the things that everybody wants is the same, but it's almost we have this polarization where people are so emotionally involved that so emotionally involved that the other side has to be wrong and this side has to be right that they're forgetting a fundamental rule here that's so important. I mean, if you look at the approval ratings between doesn't matter if they're Democrat, Republicans or the president, they all are between a 50 and 60% disapproval rating. People are getting mad, they're getting fed up, but they're digging in deeper. And here's the big blunder. They both want to persuade each other. And persuasion, when you bring someone to your point of view, which will not happen, because everyone's doing what their constituents want. They were elected to do what they're doing. So they can't budge and not do what their constituents want. This is a time for negotiation. If you can't persuade and bring someone to your point of view, you've got to come to the table and negotiate, give, take, give, take, and figure out what the solution is. Otherwise, this is going to last for a very long time. I, I think what you said about they want, both want the same thing, in, in some cases, that's, that's definitely true. And When it's coming from the other side, though, the logic of the proposal doesn't matter. That's when the human emotion kicks in. You said a few podcasts ago, we're not thinkers that, uh, that feel, we're feelers that think. And that's, that's exactly what's going on here. Because it came from the Republicans or because it came from the Democrats, it can't be a good idea, even though it might be. And I, I've been thinking about that. If people go back in time, I believe it was 2002, uh, maybe it was 2003, I can't remember exactly. That was when uh, President George W. Bush and Colin Powell were making the case to invade Iraq. And they had their arguments and reasons why that should be done, whether you agreed then or disagreed, tried to make a case. And back then, the opposite political parties were very, very opposed to it. And now we have a president in office who is making the case to take military action against Syria. And... If you were to compare some of the speeches given by the Republicans back then as opposed to the Democrats now, you'd be shocked at how identical they sound <laughs> and, and the logic. Yet now, everybody has changed sides. And, and it's amazing because it's, it's not the heart of the issue, it's who is presenting it. And I think that's why these uh, politicians have such colossally low approval ratings and low trust ratings because – Nobody nobody thinks what they say has any merit. It's just all ulterior motives. It's all gross politics that makes you feel like you want to take a shower. Yeah, you're right on. And let me continue to rip on both sides and follow up on that point to where they would put a Democrat in a room and 
They'd be listening to someone say, oh, it's a fellow Democrat. They're like, oh, I like them, but it was really Republican, and they'd put a Republican in the room, and <laughs> they would like the person until they found it was a Democrat because most of the things we want, we all tend to agree on. But, oh, oh, other side, and they did it with both parties, and both parties made the same mistakes to where it all came down to what the party was if they agreed or disagreed. And it just it's amazing that when that emotion gets involved and, and how they package things to where – one side saying it's calling it a shutdown, and the other side saying, no, it's just a slim down. It's just a small thing. <laughs> and you're like, really? And I, the best one I actually heard uh, heard was, oh, well, let's just pass something, and we'll negotiate it later. I'm like, well, how does that work? It's, it's already passed. What's to negotiate? So the, the rhetoric is getting quite painful and nauseating, and they're doing everything wrong from a negotiation standpoint. It's pretty bad. You have a term called verbal packaging, where we focus on our word choice as a persuader or a negotiator. And if anything, if we get anything out of this shutdown, we got another great example, because now we've learned that the government has, quote, essential and non-essential employees. (laughs) (laughs) And the non-essential employees, which how's that going to make you feel if you're one of those, are furloughed and they're not at work right now because they're not essential. Uh, I, I guess that's verbal packaging for their waste of money? What's that verbal packaging <laughs> I for? think so, and I, I think when you're labeled not essential, you don't have a lot of job security either. Oh, yeah, you're non-essential. <laughs> so. uh, a tip to the, the furloughed non-essential employees, I'd start looking for something else. Yeah, look for something else because who knows how long this is going to last. Look for something a little more essential. <laughs> that's right. You want to be essential to guarantee your place in the workforce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, job advice 101 here on maximize your influence. Well, okay, so why don't we roll that over into a, a topic that we've had a lot of people asking us about because negotiation is key. It's it's in every aspect of our lives. I was viewing a property here in Fremont, California with uh, some of my clients today, and on the listing from the real estate agent, it said, please, no lowball offers. I can get lowball offers on my own, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't need you to bring lowball offers to the table. And so it, it's everywhere. It's in every single aspect of our life. And so we've wanted, people have been wanting to know, what are the, say, three, four, or five major blunders in negotiation that I could look out for. So I am, A, going to have a better income, and B, not at risk of being featured on your show. (laughs) Well, the first one is, we've talked about this today, we always persuade first, negotiate second. If you can bring someone to your point of view, there's no need to negotiate. Very important. And as a negotiator, you need to be able to check your ego at the door, the emotions at the door, Because look what's happening to the government. The emotions are so powerful and so deep that no one can think clearly. And you always assume the other side's wrong, completely wrong. And you have to, with those emotions in check, realize maybe the other side has some good points. Maybe they have some things you haven't thought about. Maybe they might even have a better idea. Maybe they know something that can make you more money, but you haven't thought about it versus thinking, I have the best idea, this is take it or leave it type attitude. You've got to understand that... You have to think bigger, make the pie bigger, understand what they might be thinking, putting yourself in their shoes, and check your ego and check those emotions at the door. That's the first one. I think too many people view that in the political sphere as dancing with the devil. Why on earth would you take time to think about what the other side wants? You're giving in. We can't give them anything that we want. 
But in that case, in a situation of negotiation, now you get what we have here. We've got a shutdown, right? So the the fact is, is the other side, it does have priorities, wants, feelings, needs, desires, things that it needs to accomplish in the case of politics, things that it's accountable to its constituency for. Some reason, because we are feelers that think, we got to bring some reason to that process and, and do the best that we can in a negotiation. And realize, too, that... You know, a lot of times we put our gloves in, we're going to negotiation, we're all intense. We have to realize that win-win, we've heard that term before, does not mean equal splits. You know, in a real estate deal, banking 10% of a large deal might be a win-win for you. It doesn't mean it has to be 50-50, it doesn't have to be equal. So that's part of that mentality to know that when people go into negotiation, and, and think about what the win-win could be, you're, you're thinking about your numbers before they actually happen. And also part of that, too, is you have to play the game. A lot of people go, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, people come in high and really low. I'm just going to give them my number. Well, if people are coming into negotiation expecting to negotiate and you don't want to play the game, you're going to lose the game. That's just how it is. We see it all the time. We mentioned real estate where someone comes over and says, well, how much is your house? Well, $200,000? Oh, well, that's fair. I'll take it. Worst thing you could ever do, even though it's fair, even though it's win-win, they want to negotiate. You accept it too fast. There's going to be buyer's remorse. There's going to be that dissonance and you're going to lose the deal. Yeah, you're absolutely right. As we're recording this, we've got the baseball playoffs happening. And I don't know if you've ever seen one of those situations where you'll have a batter up, and the pitcher, for whatever reason, hits the batter with the pitch. It's on purpose. We don't know. But a lot of times what happens in the major leagues is the first thing they want to do when when they're going to be pitching, when they're in the outfield next inning, is go out there and hit the first guy with a pitch that they can <laughs> to show that if you're going to do that, we're going to do that. And I think too many times in negotiation, people get short-sighted and they don't realize, hey, you're going to have to negotiate and do business with this person again. So don't use these end-of-the-world tactics. And that's what Congress has fallen into here. These people have to learn to work together and how to accomplish things and when they take such a hard line on this stuff, their ability to do it in the future is dramatically decreased. And the other side's always going to mirror that attitude, that anger, that emotion. And and that's part of the next blunder is a lot of negotiation training will teach you, well, never take the first offer, never take the first offer. Hey, don't take the first offer. And that's not true. Study after study shows that's false. Now, if you haven't done your research, you probably don't want to make the first offer. I'm assuming you've done your homework. This is for two reasons. First of all, They've probably been in the negotiation train that says never make the first offer. You're there. You're opening up. You make the first offer, and it opens up the negotiation. It increases trust, increases likability, and increases the chances that you're going to actually negotiate something. So that's the first right. reason. Right. The second is when you make the first offer, you decide the starting point of the negotiation as high or as low as you want, which means statistically you're going to get better terms because you decided where that negotiation is going to start. I definitely like that one. I definitely like that. It, you have to know, like we talked about, you have to know the product. You have to know what's realistic. And then, yeah, you can set the terms of the negotiation. You can decide what the playing field is. Very important. Very yeah. important. Any other big, glaring blunders people should watch out for as they uh, get out there and negotiate? Oh, I have so many. Let's see. <laughs> How about, I know, fighting over the position versus finding the problem. We always want to fight over the money. We always want to fight over the big issues but without ever communicating and asking the right questions. Let me give you an example. 
two twin 12-year-old girls are fighting over the last orange. Well, mom comes down, sees the fight, last orange, they both want it. You cut it in half. That's what you do. And the, right. first, the first girl peels the orange, throws the peel away and eats the half of the orange. The other twin peels the orange, throws the orange away, and uses the peel for a cooking project. The problem was wanting the orange. The position was one wanted the peel, one wanted the orange. And it could have been a much better win-win situation if you had asked the right questions. Right, the questions stop getting so focused on stopping the other side from getting what they want. And it is. If you just listen and ask questions, they'll tell you everything you need to know. I was consulting with the gentleman that was working on a raw piece of land. It was worth, say, oh, I don't know, $420,000, but the person wanted 500 500 500 People would come in at 400 450 430 They wanted it for 500 Nobody asked, why do you want 500 Well, I'm retiring in five years, and that's what I need to finish up my retirement account. Yeah. Pretty important to know. Well, how about 100000 down and a balloon payment in five years of $400,000? Ding, 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 win, okay. win, hello. Yep. And it can be that simple when you do that. Otherwise, you, people get entrenched, and they just get so stuck on the initial problem versus uh, the initial position instead of finding that problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, that's very good advice, Kurt. Uh, anything else you'd like to chime in on before we wrap it up? Yeah. Let me, another one, too, is they teach in negotiation school. Is, oh, first one to talk loses. First one to talk loses. And yeah. you've heard that one before. Yeah. Well, if both parties have been to the same school, it gets pretty awkward after 45 minutes that nobody's talking. <laughs> and it's pretty obvious what's going on. Always understand you can maintain control of a negotiation or if the silence is not working by asking a question. That's important. And the final thing, too, is a fancy term. It's called reciprocal concessions. It's part of the law of reciprocity. Is that basically, throughout a negotiation, if you let people persuade you on a few points, persuade you on a few minor points, give them a few minor concessions, tell them, good point, that's a good idea, let's change it, then they're easier to persuade when you need to persuade them on those points that are important to you. But if you don't let them persuade you on anything, they're going to reciprocate, and they won't let you persuade them on anything. Sure, yeah. I know we got into a little bit of that back on Episode 6, but it's so key because psychologically the person has to feel satisfied. Exactly. You're, you're so much more likely to have a refund, to have blowback, to suffer some kind of punishment in the future if there isn't some kind of a reciprocal concession or concessions on the on the front end of this. We've We've – laughed about that uh, TV show, The Office, on the podcast before, but it, it reminds me of a salary negotiation that uh, the boss, uh, Steve Carell, went into, and he read on Wikipedia about negotiation. <laughs> and, and you always say, Kurt, that when it's time to negotiate, it's too late to learn. And that's what his character found out here. He's like, oh, i got to go into a salary negotiation. I better look up how to negotiate on Wikipedia. And that's one of the old school things he learned is decline to speak first. <laughs> it's this <laughs> awkward scene of him and the employee staring at each other. Nobody's <laughs> talking. And he finally says, I am declining to speak first. <laughs> All <laughs> he that, can do. And that's a great point. When you need to persuade or negotiate, it's too late to learn. And some people are bringing their cheat sheets, and they haven't practiced it before. They haven't used it before. It's so transparent. It's like, oh, I need to go buy a – a bandsaw, I need to go buy one of these fancy pieces of equipment, and you try to use it for the first time, and you're not going to do very well. You're not going to seem very professional, and you're going to probably break the machine or break the tool. Exactly. And like Jerry was talking about on the last episode we did about the, 
the different areas of success where you needed to be good at persuading others, where you needed to be good at persuading yourself, and you needed to be good at your, your actual business, most people just spend time on the business. That's all that they, they worry about. And the persuasion side of things is just as critical of a factor. You wouldn't want to go into heart surgery with a heart surgeon that is just now learning because it's time. He's got a patient. That's right on. I mean, studies show that your core competence, what you know about your business or what your profession, what you do is 15% of your success. It's the people skills, the mindset, motivating yourself, motivating other people, learning to negotiate, being the motivator, being the leader is 85% of your success. That's right. That's right. And we do this podcast so that everybody listening can have exposure to these techniques over and over. Your brain gets used to hearing them so that the next time you're in a persuasive encounter like that, it can recall that stuff. But I found one of the best ways to master this stuff is to just knock it down one at a time because otherwise you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. It's just too much information, too fast, none of it's getting in. So what one thing that we talked about today Go back, listen to this again. What one thing can you take to the next negotiation you do? Do it for the next few of them. Do it until it's something that you just do out of habit. Make these things a habit. Knock them down one at a time. And if you were even to add two or three new persuasion or sales techniques a year, a year, you would be light years beyond what most persuaders and negotiators are investing into their business. Exactly. That's right on. Just keep applying it. Use it. Become second nature to you. Add another tool. Add another tool. And before you know it, your income is going to double and triple. And you and your career will be recession proof. And you will never, ever, ever be featured as the Homer Simpson on this podcast. <laughs> never be the blunder of the week. You will, you will more likely be a ninja, which we've got to <laughs> dig up another ninja here for the next episode. That's true. Yeah. Well, Good. Let's wrap it up, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Maximize Your Influence. Like I said before, MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com is where you can send feedback, questions, ideas, anything else. Uh, funny jokes, we'll take those. Uh, those are always uh, great to read. So, Kurt, thanks for joining us. And, everybody, we will see you next week. See you next week.